from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 25th. Today, a plane's emergency landing in Belarus and what it means for press freedom. Plus, the pressure to change the way you speak. I am Michael Birnbaum. I'm the Brussels bureau chief for The Washington Post. And for a long list of reasons during the pandemic, I've been holed up for much of the last year in Latvia, which turns out to be super convenient when a plane gets quasi hijacked uh, in airspace nearby and there are a whole bunch of Baltic citizens who get in trouble. Yeah, it does sound convenient, among other things. Um, yes. So, so I want to kind of take people back. This all started on Sunday with a Ryanair flight from Greece to Lithuania. From the perspective of the passengers on this flight, what happened? So this was a weekly flight that runs between Athens, Greece, and Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. The kinds of people who take this flight, particularly this time of year, they're tourists and had spent the last week enjoying Greece after the pandemic. Uh, If you look at a map, the straightest line between Athens and Lithuania goes through Belarus. And Vilnius in particular is, is really close to the Belarusian border. It's about 20 miles to the border. So they were basically home. The pilots had already announced that they were getting ready for landing. People had flipped up their tray tables. And the. I talked to one person who said he and his wife were already thinking about how they were going to get from the airport to pick up their dog from the dog sitters and then get on home. It lasts three hours normally. And five minutes before uh, landing, uh, we received the announcement from the captain saying, oh, uh, we received a call from a bureau in our airport saying that... Uh, we have to, to land uh, with emergency in the closest airport. The closest airport was the one of Minsk. And then suddenly, the pilots came over the intercom. They said really urgently, all right, everybody, you need to get ready right now for landing. Be, be ready. And uh, the crew said that captain will explain the situation, what's happening uh, shortly. And uh, after, let's say, five or ten minutes, it, it explained that we're going to land to Minsk because of uh, some technical reasons. And the, nobody said that any information, like that uh, it's some uh, terroristic uh, attack or a bomb or something. And then after, it turned around and started to descend. And they essentially looked out of the window and realized it was descending into Minsk, the capital of Belarus, Mm. not Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. And so that's pretty inconvenient for the people who were landing, but it was super inconvenient for one of the of the passengers on the airplane. And who was this passenger and what do we now know was happening in that moment? One of the passengers was a lot more affected by this sudden landing in Minsk than the others. And other passengers on the airplane could tell he was really starting to worry as they approached the Minsk airport. So the Romans stand up 
really open the, uh, let's say, luggage uh, door, take the luggage, and was trying to split the things, like computer, give it to a girlfriend, iPhone or whatever it's called, phone, take to a girlfriend. His name was Roman Pratasiewicz. He's 26 years old, and he's essentially a dissident journalist. He's a journalist who started a news outlet that has been very prominent in opposition protests in the last couple of months. Смотря для кого она преступная, для власти в принципе сейчас, мне кажется, почти любое выражение инакомыслия так или иначе будет преступлением, и мы можем это видеть. So they started landing. He started panicking. He told passengers around him that he was facing the death penalty in Belarus. He asked the flight attendant if there was really any way that they could avoid landing in Minsk, according to some passenger accounts, and uh, he was told no. There was a MiG-29 fighter jet, a Belarusian fighter jet, that was up in the air at the same time as all of this was happening, and, and the plane was turning around. It's not clear how aware they were of the MiG fighter jet. It wasn't right next to the plane, but it was up in the air in Belarus, which is not a very big country. And, you know, Western leaders have said that this is probably part of the reason that the plane ultimately decided to land in Minsk. So our understanding is at this point that this was a situation where the government in Belarus was basically ordering this plane down in order to get a hold of this dissident journalist. What has been the reaction to that specifically from the EU? I mean, if there are lots of EU citizens on this plane that was essentially forced down. Uh, in the European Council, uh, the judgment was unanimous. This is an attack on democracy. This is an attack on freedom of expression. And this is an attack on European sovereignty. Yeah, so this really, truly shocked European leaders and, and I think leaders around the world. This is a new way uh, that a repressive regime has reached out and grabbed one of its opponents. This wasn't really something that uh, a lot of people were thinking about as a risk before. This outrageous behavior needs a strong answer. Therefore, they got together, they issued sanctions. There will be additional sanctions on individuals that are involved in the hijacking, but this time also on businesses and economic entities that are financing this regime. They cut off Belarus essentially from European air traffic. So now European planes are banned from flying over Belarus and Belarusian airlines are banned from landing and flying over Europe. And um, this was a pretty swift and big reaction. The European Union can be slow and cumbersome. There are a lot of, I mean, it's 27 countries, lots of different people disagreeing with each other, lots of different interests. But this was a, a unified and, and, and fast move. And they were trying to, you know, make a, a quick and strong show that this was simply unacceptable. It is unjustifiable that ordinary international travelers have been held hostage to the regime's aggression. This is the act of state terrorism directed against the security of citizens of the European Union and other countries, civil society of Belarus seeking asylum from the regime's persecution, as well as international civil aviation. Lithuania will demand a clear and uncompromising response from the international community. 
And um, they're not alone. President Biden and the White House have have also expressed their concern. Last night in a statement, President Biden said that the U.S. condemns what happened, the diversion of the plane, the subsequent removal and arrest of Mr. Protasevich. He called it outrageous, uh, a shameful assault on both political dissidents and the freedom of the press. And it seems like the international community is pinning this specifically on the president, Alexander Lukashenko. And he's someone who's been in power in Belarus for almost 30 years. So what do we know about why he ordered the capture of this journalist and where he fits into this? Well, so Alexander Lukashenko, the the president of Belarus, he's often called Europe's last dictator. They have elections in Belarus, but they, they certainly aren't free or fair. They had an election last August. He threw most of his opponents in jail, left one of them out free, wasn't taking her very seriously, but it seems as though she may have captured a quite decent share of the vote although um, international observers say that there was a lot of fraud. Not clear quite how much she won, but afterward, that sparked a tremendous opposition, sort of protest movement last August. He cracked down on it violently, and this journalist uh, was covering those movements and, and spreading information that helped opposition protesters go out and protest mm. and express their um, disgust and, and their frustration with Lukashenko. And what has Lukashenko said at this point about the capture of this journalist? Like, is he publicly acknowledging that he was the one who ordered this? And what does he say about why he feels this was justified? So his official channels have said this was indeed his personal order. This is something that Lukashenko did. He has a Telegram channel, which is is a social network that's very popular in Belarus and, and Russia. And on their official accounts, they've said he sent up the fighter jet and he worked to get this guy back onto the ground in Minsk. I mean, the official excuse is that there was this bomb threat. But they haven't tried very hard to paper over the idea that they were delighted to to get this guy on the ground. Lukashenko and Belarusian authorities say that Protasevich was dangerous. He is accused of crimes in Belarus. He's charged with organizing protests and endangering the country. These are crimes that have at least 12 years uh, prison sentences, and he's in custody now. So... Lukashenko has has embraced this whole thing. So we know that Protasevich is in jail. Do we know what his condition is or what is going to happen to him next? Добрый день, меня зовут Роман Протасевич. Вчера я был задержан сотрудниками МВД в национальном аэропорту Минск. Сейчас я нахожусь в сезон номер один города Минска. So it's a little hard to figure out what's happening inside the Belarusian penal system, but he did release a video, or I should say there was a video released yesterday. It's not clear what the circumstances were, but he certainly seems to have been coerced into making the video. In it, Protasevich says that he's cooperating with Belarusian authorities, that his health is good, and that he's busy confessing to the crimes he's accused of. 
It has the air a bit of a hostage video. Mm-hmm. This is something that Belarusian authorities are known for. And if you look at his face, he has bruises all over it. And so it seems pretty clear that even though he's saying he's fine, that at minimum he's been beaten up and that, you know, he's he's probably not in, in the best of conditions. He said that he was in the main detention center in, in Belarus, in, in Minsk, that they typically use for political prisoners. So what are the big questions that we still don't have answers to about how this whole force landing went down and what the implications are here? There are a lot of things we're still trying to learn. One of them is why the pilots ultimately decided that when they were so close to Lithuania, they were going to turn around and head into Minsk. It doesn't make a lot of sense if they have a bomb on board. Why would you go further to get to Minsk when you're within sight of the Vilnius airport? That's not super clear. A bigger question probably is, I mean, how did this operation get carried out? Is this a purely homegrown one? Is this something that Lukashenko was doing on his own with with Belarusian authorities? Or is it something that he worked with Russian President Vladimir Putin on or or people in the Kremlin? Belarus and, and Russia are very close. Lukashenko is dependent on financial aid, essentially, from Russia. And they have engaged in joint operations before. So a lot of the officials I've talked to say it's not a crazy idea, at least to ask the question, is this something that was done together with Russia? So thinking broadly, what are the stakes here, both in terms of global politics and also for the people of Belarus? Well, so there are so many things at play. Very, very broadly, what has just happened, there's a new precedent that has been set. You know, dissidents, journalists, you know, even people who aren't particularly political, but people who say things that piss off governments, they have a new thing to worry about. What happens, for example, if a Washington Post journalist writes something critical about the Chinese government or Xinjiang or something like that and is on an airplane flying over Chinese airspace? Is this something that can happen now? Can Chinese authorities force down an airplane and arrest someone? I mean, this is something kind of new. So that's a a new risk that a lot of people suddenly have to think about. Another one you you asked about Belarus specifically, what's going to happen? Are these sanctions going to hurt the Belarusian economy so much that Lukashenko's hold on power is shaken? It's not really clear. Probably he'll have to be even more dependent on Russia. So it's certainly in the short run going to push him closer to Putin. And for ordinary Belarusian people, certainly there's nothing good here. Uh these sanctions are are going to be big and broad. There were sanctions that the European Union issued against Belarusian officials after the election in August, but they were designed so that they did not hurt ordinary Belarusian people. They were kind of mild. These are going to be different. The aim is to issue a broadside against the Belarusian economy and, and shake Lukashenko. So... Yeah, this is uh, it's, it, it's not very clear. I think we're just at the beginning of the story, but there's a lot going on. Michael Birnbaum is the Brussels bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Renny Svernowski.
Nancy Navarro is the first Latina councilwoman in Montgomery County, Maryland. And she was recently in a Zoom city council meeting talking about racial equities in vaccine distribution. And on the audio of the Zoom meeting, she couldn't hear it, but everyone else could hear people kind of giggling about the way that she was speaking. You hear laughter and you hear, you know, giggles and they specifically point out a couple of words and how I pronounce them supposedly the way I think it's supposed to be pronounced. And then there's more laughter. And at the end, somebody says, you know, it's cute. And after the meeting, her staffers kind of sent her the recordings of what happened. And she just felt pretty embarrassed and also pretty angry. It was just so, in my opinion, um, symbolic of how there's definitely a pervasive culture in spaces where people don't quite understand that these type of flippant comments do have an impact. There's been incidents of discrimination for people who have accents, and I know that a lot of people feel pressure to kind of change that part of themselves. My name is Rachel Hatsi-Panagos, and I'm a staff writer for the About Us newsletter. Rachel talked with producer Lena Muhammad about why some people feel the need to change their accent. What did Nancy say about how her accent has kind of, you know, shaped her experience in the United States? Yeah, I've spoken to her and she says that she's not exactly surprised about it, but that as a Spanish speaker, she kind of runs into this a lot constituents or people like that, people kind of stop and ask her, oh, where are you from? And, you know, she has to pretty much tell them that she's lived in the, in the U.S. her whole life. But she always kind of feels that moment where people maybe think that she doesn't belong. And she sees it almost as a way to connect with her constituents. She's in a county that has a significant Latino population. And so when she talks to them, like a lot of times they'll, even if they're not people that are directly under her jurisdiction, they'll reach out to her kind of recognizing that she is the Latina on the council. Uh, And so they'll feel like they have a special connection with her and especially, and they may even, you know, switch over and speak Spanish with her because that's their primary language. Um, So for her, like having an accent and speaking Spanish is really an asset. Yeah. And in a lot of spaces as well, you know, you know, people discriminate against you when they hear that you have an accent. So I spoke with an entrepreneur named Jose Casayo, and he is a Costa Rican man who does a lot of business in the U.S. And he felt a lot of pressure, especially when he was starting out in the business world, to disguise his accent as much as he could when he was speaking English. Costa Rica is a tiny country. We are A lot of our economy depends on tourism. A lot of that tourism is from the U.S. And in general... You know, sort of speaking English in Costa Rica is a a must. Like a- any any well paid job will require you to speak English, and and speaking fluent English is is a true differentiator. He told me pretty much that in one of his first jobs was at a call center, and the call center dealt with a lot of 
clients in the U.S. And a lot of times people would just immediately hear someone's accent and ask to be directed to speak to the manager. And so he he did he's done a lot of work over the years in masking his accent. And um, later on, when he became a CEO, he started taking accent reduction courses. Uh, and those like were where he really focused on specific ways on, on how to reduce his accent. But, you know, there, there are advantages to disguising your accent. You mentioned that, that he had taken um, accent reduction classes. What are those? Accent reduction classes, uh, accent modification instruction. There's a lot of different ways of saying it over the years because people have kind of tried to make it sound as though it's not a pathology. But pretty much a, a lot of people offer these kind of classes and their aim is to get people to speak in like and sounding like native English speakers. What does a native English speaker sound like? You know, everyone has an accent. The native speaker accent, it's always going to be a little bit subjective. A lot of times what people think of when they think of that accent is they think of broadcast news people, especially in television and radio. It's the accent that you'll hear from a newscaster, whether you're in North Carolina or you're in California or you're in New York. And this kind of standardized general American accent kind of developed as things like syndication developed and people in the media kind of saw a plus to being able to kind of turn on the radio or turn on your TV and listen to the same kind of voice no matter where you were. So you would go to a speech pathologist and, and they would help you like Americanize the way that you speak? Yes, uh, that's yes, that's a general idea. Uh, the classes are taken by people in sort of all walks of life. Some of them are in broadcasting, but you also see people taking them who work in the medical field or who work in corporate America. A lot of times in the medical field, physicians will feel like patients trust them less if they speak in an accent uh, and they maybe will ask to have another doctor. And so whether or not they're they're competent is kind of irrelevant. Usually it's the patient judging them based on the way that they speak. I think one of my sources said something along the lines of these services wouldn't exist if discrimination didn't exist. And I think a lot of it just has to do with assimilation and there's kind of an expectation in the U.S. that you're going to assimilate into broader American culture, which is usually code for white American culture and the white American way of speaking. And I think, you know, we can't untangle that from white supremacy and all these other, you know, complicated historical factors that make one person's accent considered to be more valuable than another person's way of speaking. There's definitely a reason that the white Anglo-American way of speaking is considered the preferable way of speaking. Uh, Rachel, I'm also curious, do you ever get that? Like when you when you say your name? I'm half Greek and half Honduran and Cuban. And so my, my last name is Greek. But a lot of times growing up, I lived in a household that primarily spoke Spanish. And it wasn't until I started going to school 
with other English speakers that my English got much better than my Spanish. But a lot of times I'll just feel a little bit insecure because I'm not sure if I am speaking with an accent or not, quite frankly. And I noticed even when I was doing interviews for this story that a lot of people who I interviewed said that they didn't have an accent and I could kind of hear it. So then it just, it kind of reinforced that that cycle of insecurity because I was like, maybe I do have an accent and I just don't hear it when I speak. So yeah, it's kind of a whole thing. Yeah. So I'm an immigrant to the United States and I also go through the same exact, uh, basically thought process. Whenever I open my mouth to, to speak in English, there's sort of like, Right. Like part of my brain is translating um, from Arabic into English. And then the other part is like, wait, do you have an accent? Are you saying this with an accent? Are you pronouncing this right? Are people going to hear this? And I just I think about how much energy and effort that takes. Absolutely. And a lot of those people I spoke with had similar experiences For a lot of them, English isn't their first language. And so on top of having to learn a whole another language, a lot of times in business contexts, they also have to worry about trying to kind of disguise this accent at the same time. And they're trying to relate to their clients or, or something like that. And so it's just, it does, it takes a lot of mental effort to to translate, to make sure your accent isn't being heard, and at the same time, making sure you're being understood. Rachel Hatsipanagos writes for the About Us newsletter. She talked to Lena Muhammad from Post Reports. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. Today marks the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. We think of this as a moment that ignited a movement. But today, we're also thinking about it in the context of the man George Floyd was. You have heard us talk a lot about our episode, The Life of George Floyd. If you have not listened to it yet, today is a really good day to do that. We'll put a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 